Well, let's turn together to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 2, if you have your Bibles. I don't know about you, but this feels kind of like the old days, and it feels good. But of course, it's not exactly uh, like the old days. My being up here is more, you might say, a baby step in the direction of us being together again. And just when will that be? Well, <laughs> if you haven't already, you might want to make sure that you read this week's digital bulletin. Uh, we do have a digital bulletin that goes out each week, the one that came out on Thursday. And there's more information there about our plans for uh, coming back together. A good part of what we do will depend on the results of a survey, of a congregational survey that will uh, be taken that's also in the bulletin. So you'll need to make sure that you fill it out and uh, send it in as soon as possible. That will have a real impact on uh, the, ne the next steps that we uh, take from here. Well, as most of you know, we skipped ahead to Romans 8 toward the beginning of the coronavirus epidemic because uh, we needed some encouragement from the scripture. But now it's time to get back to where we left off, having finished off Romans 8 last week, to Romans chapter 2. We turn today from what we saw was the apocalypse of God's judgments down through the history of mankind, where Paul says the wrath of God is being revealed. It happens on a continual basis, the discipline of God to keep mankind, to keep the world from becoming hell on earth. But we saw that the wrath of God was revealed, the apocalypse of God's judgments. Uh, and we saw just how that happens as we went through Romans 1, uh, and then the beginning of chapter 2. Uh, we went from there to the reason for his judgments. We saw that it's not just, you know, the pagans who bring it on, because God's people are often just as much to blame when God's discipline comes. It's the relentless love of God as we saw it. And yet my fear is that these days God's people are at least in many ways, at least some of them, are pointing the finger at everyone but themselves and focusing, you know, on our rights to assemble uh, or uh, our rights to free worship or whatever, rather than the bottom line of our repentance. Not that in a democracy we don't seek to preserve our rights. We have that responsibility according to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 13, and we'll see that once we get there. But just as importantly, we've got responsibility to own up to our part of the problem, as we'll see. Again, it's in Romans 2, and we'll be starting today in verse 17. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth, you therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that one shall not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, though, you're, uh, though breaking the law, do you dishonor God? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, just as it is written. 
You may have heard the story uh, about the frontier town preacher who, uh, in a community where lumber was their business, he was very well received when he first arrived, and they even built a fine church for him. So excited were they to have their own preacher. But then he happened to see his uh, parishioners, as he got to know them, dragging logs that had been floated downstream from another village. And to his horror, he saw that they were sawing off the ends where the owner's stamp was, and then they made their own mark in, uh, in its place. And so the next Sunday, he preached a sermon on thou shalt not steal. And he preached it with passion, and they said it was a wonderful sermon. Well, the Sunday after that, he preached on the same subject again, but this time his application was this, thou shalt not cut off the ends of thy neighbor's logs. And guess what happened? They ran him out of town. That's called... Uh, going from preaching to meddling, which is just what Paul does uh, in our passage for today. He's looking at things like the coronavirus epidemic and many other things that cycle through history, and he's saying to God's people, this is not about your rights. No, more fundamentally, it's about your repentance. This is not about your freedom of religion, important though that may be, but even more importantly, it's about our freedom from sin. It's not just about whether there's some conspiracy, but equally important, it's about whether God will have mercy. Paul's, Paul goes from talking about the self-righteous moralists that appear down through history, that's Romans 2, 1 to 4, to uh, naming names, the names of the self-righteous moralists of his day, which is just what we must do if it's to the scripture that we want to be true this morning by way of application. He began this chapter, if you remember, by saying, therefore you. In Romans 1, we heard like one thunderous rebuke after another against all the wicked pagans of Romans 1 who bring on God's wrath, all the evil people that, that sometimes we love to hate. And he concludes in verse 1 of chapter 2, though, by saying, therefore. That is, he's saying, here's the conclusion to all that I've been saying about them outside the church. Here's the point. Therefore, they are without excuse. No, therefore, huh, you are without excuse. Every one of you who passes judgment. Paul's focusing on every one of us who exudes a spirit of judgmentalism against the gays and the lesbians and all the rest, against the Bernies and the Hillarys, if you happen to be on the conservative right, a spirit that stinks to high heaven to everyone but ourselves. Therefore, you. Therefore, me? And you think, wait a minute, I thought we were talking about them. We saw that Romans 1 is a classic bait and switch, kind of in the old prophetic tradition, and especially in the tradition of the greatest prophet of all, of Jesus Christ, who would do this all the time with the Pharisees. It's where he'd get them to point the finger at someone else, and then he turned the tables, and before they knew it, they had four fingers pointing back at themselves. The Pharisees hated this about Christ because not only did he do this again and again, he tricked them into condemning, condemning themselves uh, in front of everyone else in public. 
which is just what Paul did in Romans 2.1 when he says, therefore you. But then he does it again, 16 verses later, in our passage for today, Romans 2.17, when he says, but you. Because he knew that Pharisees can get so focused on everyone but themselves that they probably hadn't gotten it the first time around, or if they had, they forgot about it by 17 verses later. And so this time, rather than giving them just three verses of grief, he goes on for 21 verses. And it begins in verse 17, where he names the worst offenders of them all, but if you bear the name Jew. And it's like, if you just imagine it, a hush grows over the, goes over the crowd. Look, look, you know, who he's taking on now. He is leveling the whole field of mankind and saying you're all the same in your flesh. Including the last bastion of righteousness in America. I mean, in the Roman Empire. But if you bear the name Jew. Who might that be in our day? You could put another name in there too as we follow Paul's cue of upping the ante by naming names. We've seen how he applied it in his day. How should we apply it today? Well, to get a feel for just how this would have sounded back then, we'd need to substitute another group of religious offenders that can plague the world today. And one of the best parallels today is, and especially in America, to what Paul was talking about in his day would read uh, this way. Therefore, uh, but if you bear the name conservative Christian. So... This is where it goes from preaching to meddling, from thou shalt not steal to thou shalt not cut off the ends of thy neighbor's logs. And not just to you, but to me, because it's a tendency we all have. Paul's fingering those who call themselves God's people when, in fact, a good number of them are heartless Pharisees. How did this sound back then? Well, here's how it sounded. But if you bear the name conservative Christian and rely upon the law, a modern-day paraphrase would uh, change that to Bible. You rely upon the Bible and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are ex excellent, just like we approve the things that are essential, uh, uh, essential things like the virgin birth, the, the authority of scripture, the, the blessed hope of his return, things like being pro-life, pro-family, things like abstinence-based sex education, prayer in schools, traditional morality, a conservative judicial appointees. Another translation says they were able to distinguish between the things that differ, that is, that differ from the law. Oh, they had a finely tuned sense of anything that differed from anything that was right in God's eyes. They had like this hound dog sense for anything and anyone that even in the slightest differed from biblical truth. And boy, the, could they destroy them once they uh, got to them. 
They could detect the most subtle influences of you know, liberal theology or of secular humanism or of the gay agenda or of things that differ from sound doctrine or whatever it was back then. You approve the things that are essential, distinguishing between the things that differ being instructed out of the Bible. Paul's fingering a form of religion here that appears in every generation. Not just among the Jews, but in the church. And the first thing we see here is that they were, two words, Bible taught. They were Bible taught. Again, in verses 17 and 18, it says they relied on the law and boasted in God because they knew his will and approved what was excellent because they were instructed out of the law. They believed all the right things. They were dead on when it came to matters of, of theology and of morality. These Pharisees had the Bible down cold to the point that they, that they even memorized vast sections of Scripture. Some of them had the whole Old Testament uh, memorized. But it wasn't warm. It was cold. They had it down cold. It was doctrinal, but it was not, you might say, devotional. It was light without love. It was the letter of the law without the spirit of the law. The great devotional writer, A.W. Uh, Tozer, put it this way. He said, it may shock some readers to suggest that there is a difference between being Bible-taught and spirit-taught. Nevertheless, it is so. It is altogether possible to be instructed in the rudiments of the faith and still have no real understanding of the whole thing. And it is possible to go on to become an expert in Bible doctrine and not have spiritual illumination with the result that a veil remains over their eyes. Being biblically taught can make you feel in a very subtle and a very imperceptible way stronger or better or bigger than you really are. It sure can be. Tozer concludes, the religion of these people is wholly mechanical and altogether lacking in radiance. Many of them are pathetically serious about it all and simply blind. We'll see the remedy for this in a few minutes, but first, there's one more thing. Not just being biblically taught can make us feel this way. Biblical talk can do it too. Which moves us to verses 19 to 20. And you are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the Bible the embodiment of knowledge and of truth. On top of their biblical learning, they engaged in such biblical teaching. But it was just talking. It wasn't that what they said was wrong. No, it was right. Which is why Christ said in Matthew 23, you need to do what they say. The scribes and Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. Which is the Pentateuch and the, the five books of the, the first five books of the Bible and the law. They've seated themselves in that chair. Therefore, all that they do, all that they tell you to do and observe, do that, but do not do according to their deeds, for they say things and do not do them. Because believing it is not the same as 
doing it, though it can sure feel like it, especially if on top of hearing it and believing it, you're preaching it. And so Paul says in verse 21, he concludes by saying, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You know, I've had to learn this lesson again and again over the years. There is a great deal of difference between teaching principles and being principled. Someone said it is far easier to espouse your principles than it is to live up to them. It is far easier to teach them, even to fight for them, than it is to follow them. According to this passage, you're in the greatest danger of falling into this, the greatest of all pitfalls, when something floods into you, when you're biblically taught, and when something floods out of you, and that is biblical talk. You may have godly convictions, and you may even feel them so strongly that you take it upon yourself to enlighten others. You're forever, you know, lecturing your kids or your spouse or your peers or your elected representatives or the left wing of the Democratic Party. You may be doing it in all sincerity, but it does not mean that you're godly. That's what Paul's saying here. You know his will and rely on the law with great conviction, so much so that you teach others, but you who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You know, I've got many convictions, and you'll hear about, and you have heard about many of them from this pulpit, but don't, don't be deceived. Not a few of them still have to go a whole lot deeper into my character. And I have to tell myself again and again, beware being a Pharisee preacher. Beware the deception. For goodness sake, don't give the impression that you're, that you're like the incarnation of all that instruction that you're, that's pouring out of you. Yet like the Pharisees, in more ways than one, it's so easy if you're a preacher to believe what people, uh, that what people think about you is who you really are. And it's so easy to live for that and to go up or down based on that. It's like Pascal said, we do not content ourselves with the life we have in ourselves and in our own being before God. We desire rather to live an imaginary life in the mind of others and for this purpose we endeavor to shine and I've done that. We labor unceasingly to adorn and preserve this imaginary existence, and in so doing, he concludes, we neglect the real, who we really are. That's what Christ said the Pharisees were doing. And we too, on the conservative right, can become more and more, like he said, happened to them uh, as whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear Beautiful, he said, but inside they are full of dead man's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. That's how I feel like sometimes after I preach. Like this, you know, this this shiny shell of a Christian, one that could easily become a whitewashed tomb if all I do you know, is shine up my convictions for, for public consumption. 
If you're in the limelight, it's so easy. And we have a lot of teachers in this church who God has gifted powerfully. It's so easy, though, to live for it, to, to live for the limelight, to bask in it, to be satisfied with that, unless you spend a lot of time alone with him in his light. If you're a teacher, some of your convictions will, by definition, shine brighter uh, than your character. And that can be very deceptive, both to the speaker uh, and to the listener. Yes, character of the teacher is supposed to be more mature, but it's so easy to think that you're more mature than you really are. That saying it is as good as doing it. That, 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 that I am what I say. You know, they don't warn you about this in seminary. All this Christian talk and being so biblically taught can make you feel in a very subtle and even imperceptible way stronger or better or, or bigger than you really are. Which is why David said, oh, search me, oh God. He was a teacher. And know my heart, Psalm 139, 23. Try me and know my thoughts, who I really am, and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the everlasting way from the inside out. But you know, it's not just preachers and teachers who are susceptible to this. All of us conservative Christians, everyone on the Christian right, deep down, are capable of being so dogmatically right, so pridefully right, so terribly right that we end up being dead wrong. Even though we may be technically right. A friend of mine, Tom Hovestall, wrote a book about this, published by Moody Press. It's become a classic. It's, it's called Extreme Righteousness, Seeing Ourselves in the Pharisees. I'd highly recommend it, along with another one called We Are the Pharisees. Listen to Tom's story. I was immersed in the scripture early in life. My church put a heavy emphasis on mouthing the right doctrines, memorizing the right verses, mastering biblical content. I read the Bible, memorized it, systematically dissected it, studied it, and sometimes applied it to my life. I cherish my biblical heritage, he says. God's truth dominates my perspective on life, for which I am eternally grateful. The Bible has been my lifelong guide and an anchor that gives stability through storms. But then he goes on to say essentially this, every strength has a corresponding weakness, one that can turn a great asset into a great liability. Here's how he put it. During my college years, my belief in the magical ability of the Bible to transform lives began to be shaken. That I, I saw that people with the right theology and good knowledge of the Bible must uh, do not inevitably become godly. I saw people who studied, memorized, taught, and preached the Bible whose attitudes were condemning and whose actions were not loving. I looked into my own soul. And I saw that the Bible was not transforming me nearly like I thought. I had acquired much Bible knowledge over the years and constantly studied the Bible, but somehow there was not a straight line between studiousness and Christ-likeness. If we know a lot, it's so easy to be self-deceived. 
Just like James said, therefore prove yourselves to be doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Or Paul, knowledge makes arrogant. 1 Corinthians 8.1 Because Christian talk and being biblically taught can make us all feel stronger or bigger or better or all three than we really are. So what's, what's to be done? What do we do about it? Well, the short answer is this. We need to work, as Christ told the Pharisees, on the inside of the cup. Or maybe better, we need to ask God to help us work on the inside of the cup. Just like Christ said in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they are full of robbery and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and of the dish so that the outside may become clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like a whitewashed tomb which on the outside appear beautiful, but inside they are full of dead man's bones and uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. I need to read this regularly to expose myself to this light even as I'm in the limelight. It's so easy to focus on the outside. And the bottom line of what we do is to stop neglecting, as Pascal says, the real. To stop focusing on the appearance of who I am and to start focusing on the reality of who I am, on what's really going on inside me. And how do you do that? How do you stop, uh, uh, you know, promoting your imaginary existence and neglecting the real? Well, here's one way to do it that I've used over the years. Uh, one way of working from the inside out is to arm ourselves, A-R-M, which means A, Assess your thoughts. R, repent of evil thoughts. And then M, meditate on the truth that counters those thoughts. Because only God can change us. Assess not your appearance, but your reality. Assess your thoughts, repent of evil thoughts, and meditate on the truth that counters those thoughts. It all starts what's, with what's really going on in us, with our thought life. The Bible couldn't be more clear about this, that it's got to start with our thoughts on the inside. Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And we're going to see in Romans 12 that we're transformed by the renewing of our minds. Romans 8, we'll see that the bottom line of sanctification, when we go back to the beginning of that chapter, which we skipped, the bottom line of sanctification is to set our minds on the things of the Spirit. Which is why Paul said that we're to take every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, 2 Corinthians 10, 5. So that's the strategy. How does it work in practice? Well, for me, one of many ways is this. It's a line of thinking that I don't have to counter as much these days as I did 10, 20, 30 years ago, but I still do. That is this, Lord, 
I'm starting to think too much about what they thought about what I just preached. Sometimes I have to repent of fearful thoughts. Forgive me for caring more about what they're thinking than about what you're thinking. Sometimes I have to say, I repent of those prideful thoughts about how well it went, and I, I, I reject and repudiate them. I put them to death. Oh, Lord, you know how much less, how I don't shine up to this public sheen, the limelight. Thank you that the real me is Jesus in me, who only cared about pleasing you. So I put to death my flesh, and you're the real me. Now go to it, Lord. And then I'll bring in the verses, kind of like smart bombs against bad thoughts. I'll put on the Lord Jesus Christ using his own words when he said, I do not receive glory from men. John 6, 41. I love that verse. He only cared about glory from God. I do not receive glory from men. I don't feed on it. This is not what fills my cup. It's the Father who fills my cup. He who speaks from himself seeks his own glory, Christ said, but the Father has given me commandment, what to say and what to speak, even if it means meddling, which in my flesh I don't like to do. And I'm here to please him, however the cards may fall whether or not they get run out of town. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another? That's what he said to the Pharisees, John 5, 44, and do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God. Not to me, O Lord, not to me, as David said, but to your name give glory. I give it all back to you. I'm not even going to think about it. Your word went forth, and that's all that matters. First, assess your thoughts. Second, repent of evil thoughts. And then magnify the truth against the sin as deep down in your heart you meditate on God's word. Because as David said in Psalm 51, the great psalm of repentance, he desires truth in the inner man. And it all takes place from there. That's how you make repentance and really revival a way of life rather than allowing Christian talk and being biblically taught to make you feel bigger and better and greater than you really are, which only brings ruin to the church and to the nation. Because all this that's happening around us these days is not ultimately about our rights and whether men take them away. No, it's about our repentance and whether God will have mercy. It's not about our freedom of religion. It's about our, our freedom from sin, which is always his agenda behind his discipline or whatever he allows to happen, as we saw in Romans 8, that we'd become conformed to the image of Christ as a result of it, and less like the flesh that is in us. And I fear that we are just not getting it. 
looking around us anyway. But it can be true right here. And you guys really got it when we went through 40 days of repentance, seeking God's guidance in that posture. That came from the heart. That is so unusual. There was a, a, a groundswell of signing up to pray and fast. So by God's grace, he's been preparing us. Whatever's happening around us, it can be true of us, and that's all that matters. God will take care of the rest. Not pointing the finger at all the Christians, you know, who aren't getting it. I found myself doing that. Because it's me, it's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. And I praise God that so many of you do understand this. Understand what? Well, it's not just the pagans that bring on God's discipline. It's Christians. And according to Romans 2, this is one of the reasons. If God's word stays in our heads, our spirits will swell. And we'll end up feeling bigger in the wrong way. And coming across in that way and pointing the finger at everyone but ourselves. But let God's word penetrate into the secret parts of your heart and he'll do the work through his word and his spirit will swell and you'll end up being bigger and better than you really are in him and not fully yourself in the right way, in all humility, as he gets the glory. The bottom line is this. It, it's what we're about to sing. May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day, by his love and power controlling all I do and say, starting with what I think. May the word of God dwell richly, not just up here, but in here. In my heart, from hour to hour, so that all may see I triumph only through Christ's power. Amen.